from Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may live with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Hey, and Kelly. It sounded really loud when I said that. Oh, there we go. You're good. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few moments and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, please, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ and in his name alone. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. All right, guys. Good to see you all. Good to see y'all. Hey, by the way, have you noticed that Kevin Reed is saying y'all more and more? I feel like uh, that's, that's something I take pride in. I'm rubbing off on him. The, uh, the southerner in me is slowly but surely converting the congregation to y'all speakers, and I love it. So this week, um, we are looking at Romans chapter 15, as RJ and Kelly just read for us. And the cool thing about that is it means that we, as a church, have now officially made it to the final stretch of the book of Romans. We are in chapter 15 out of 16 chapters. Can you believe it? And some of y'all have been here through the thick and thin I remember when I preached the first sermon in Romans, I told you all about the pastor in England, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached on Romans for like a decade. And um, I think like we lost like 30% of our church after that night. Um, but it is kind of cool. We, it hasn't taken us a decade, but it has taken a long time. And we're kind of coming into home, you know, home plate a little bit. Um, so that's the cool thing about tonight, but then don't get too excited about a new chapter. Like, woohoo, we're on a new chapter, we're talking about something new. Not quite. We're still sort of in that same discussion we've been dealing with for the last few weeks that we saw in the previous chapter, this discussion about the matters of conscience. And when Christian brothers and sisters disagree with one another about which things are permissible, for believers to do and which things are impermissible, which things we have a strong conscience about and which things we have a weak conscience about. We've read all through in chapter 14 about that particular debate and we've covered a lot of ground. We sort of gave you guys some background as to culturally what was happening that precipitated that debate, this whole question about food and food that was clean or unclean. 
Uh, we've mentioned that the, the big thrust of Romans 14 being that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, both the weak and the strong. And so because of that, we, we owe each other mutual uh, respect and humility towards one another's views. And we've even talked the last couple of weeks about this sort of approach to life that I phrased love over liberty. That as Christians, we are people that, yes, we have been freed by Jesus. We have liberty in certain matters of conscience. And yet that's not the core of who we are as people. The core of who we are is the love of Jesus and showing that love to our brothers and sisters in the church. And what that looks like sometimes is that those who have a free conscience about certain matters will purposely limit their freedom so as to protect the conscience of the weaker brother. That's love over liberty. And really, as hard as that is, it's beautiful to think about. It's beautiful to think about the kingdom of God being filled with people that prioritize loving their brother or sister more than they do their own freedom. At least for me, when I preached about it the last few weeks, I just was so enthused coming away on Sundays thinking about the kingdom of God in that sort of idyllic, almost even romantic way. It really is beautiful. However, not everybody views it like that. Not everybody views this love over liberty idea as this beautiful, romantic, idyllic thing. Some people see it as a much more just sort of practical, earthly compromise. In fact, there are some critics of the book of Romans that when they read this section of the letter, what they think is happening is that Paul is just taking two bickering groups of people And he's doing whatever he has to do to make them get along. Just saying, hey, keep the peace no matter what. Do whatever it takes. Say what you need to. Do what you need to. But just simmer down. And in fact, I was, uh, yeah, I'm glad you pulled this one up right right here. Because this uh, week as I was looking over this, I'm recalling an article that I read years ago when I was a seminary student. I couldn't find the article, but I remember it's tattooed on my brain. And it was all about how Paul in this section of the letter to the Romans is like a, a human resources manager who's doing conflict resolution. And that really, what it comes down to is he is, is not presenting this idyllic vision of the kingdom of God. He's just saying, hey, you guys are arguing. You're in my department. Uh, can you just say you're sorry, even though you don't mean it, to just smooth things over? Could you just, I know you're upset. I know you're angry. But just, just move on. Pretend like it's okay just to keep the peace. And essentially what he's doing is just this very practical, efficient management technique to just get people to get along. Now, the irony about that is the guy that was writing this article thought that was a positive thing. (laughs) This was the day and age where like the book had come out, like Jesus, the CEO. Do you remember that? It's all about how Jesus is going to show you how to build your company into a Fortune 500 uh, company. And so I think this was like something that was in the water in these days. It's like, let's, let's look at the Bible for ways that we can run our company. 
And Paul doing conflict resolution as a middle manager was what they saw in Romans chapter 14 and 15. And it stinks because when you look at it that way, it robs all the beauty, all the kind of just glorious nature of the kingdom of God from what's being described here. And even though it's a provocative thought, this idea of Paul doing conflict resolution, it's totally wrong. (laughs) I hope you realize that. Yes, Hannah, perfect. I coached her. I was like, when I say wrong, you throw that slide out. She did it perfectly. And usually I don't bash on different authors and articles that I read or whatnot, but considering I can't find this one and you don't know the author's name, I feel free to say it's categorically wrong. And our text that we read today made that so obvious because what we read in this text in chapter 15, verse 1 through 7, is Paul saying, no, 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 no. This is not just a practical way to keep the peace. This is not just me saying, hey, say you're sorry, even you don't mean it, just to smooth things over. No, this living, this love over liberty living, it's rooted in the gospel itself. It finds its foundation in what we believe about Jesus and what he's done for his people. So, for instance, the beginning of this text, he brings up Jesus as an example of one who did not please himself but gave himself over on the cross for the sake of loving his people. And not just as an example to emulate, he did that to give you life. Your freedom, your forgiveness in Christ was purchased by someone who chose love over liberty. And then moving down a little bit further, we see him talking about worship and unity and worship. And we get this picture that when we approach love over liberty, when we live like that, we create an environment where God is worshipped as he deserves to be worshipped. We're able to give God the glory that he delights in when this is the way that we go about our life. This isn't a management technique. It's not conflict resolution. It is living that is rooted deeply in the gospel itself. And I think the reason that I wanted to start like this and I've kind of been wrestling with it is because after the last few weeks of preaching on what it looks like to to limit my freedom for the sake of loving a brother, I realized something. There have been many times that I've done that, not because I love my brother or sister, but because I hate conflict And I want to say what I need to say or do what I need to do just to smooth things over and move on. And in a way, that's not me mentally buying into this idea of Paul as the human resource manager, but practically it is. Because I'd be doing the same thing if I followed in those footsteps of just saying, yeah, the Bible says I should yield to the weaker brother here. I really don't want to. I really don't like them that much. But you know what? To keep the peace, I'll do what I need to do. Now, it's tricky to talk about that. Because humbling yourself to limit your freedom is always hard, no matter what the motive is. And so there's a sense in which it's good, I think, sometimes to take baby steps to do the action, even though our heart is lagging behind a little bit. But the reason I bring it up is because I want us to be a people that when we decide to walk this path of love over liberty, we're doing it not purely just to say what we need to say to keep the peace, but we're doing it because we see 
that that action is rooted in the gospel that we believe and the Jesus that has redeemed us and nothing less. Okay, so we're looking at two things. How we see love and liberty in the life of Christ, but then also how we see love over liberty as this expression of true worship that that God delights in. So let's start with that first thing, the example of Christ. The first few verses are playing off this word to please. That verb, please, comes up multiple times in the first verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. What do you think please means there? Hey, and by the way, I don't know if y'all can hear, but are the pigeons exceptionally loud today? I didn't know if it was just me up here in the front. Wow, I don't know what's going on, but those pigeons, whew. Okay, so really fight hard to concentrate, guys. I know the pigeons, that, that's the work of the devil, okay? <laughs> Trying to get us away from the word. So when we see in that first verse, not pleasing ourselves, we want to think of that in the context of this whole passage, which has been talking about preferences. So not pleasing yourself here means not putting your preference in the front seat, not prizing your freedom, what you want to do, what you prefer, what your conscience says, but rather, now we're going to read in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So I'm not going to please myself. I'm not going to put my preferences first, but rather I'm going to please my neighbor. I'm going to put their preferences, their conscience, the ability that they have to walk in love first, a.k.a. love over liberty. That same thing we've been talking about now for three weeks. So, Easy enough. Let's keep going, though. Now in verse 3, that word please comes up again, but this time with a new subject. For Christ did not please himself. Jesus Christ didn't put his preferences first. He didn't put his freedom at the foreground. Instead, he pleased his neighbor. He pleased his people. And then there's a quotation. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That comes from Psalm number 69. It's a psalm that was oftentimes recited by New Testament writers when they wanted to show how Jesus was the embodiment of the Old Testament and that in a sense, in his death and crucifixion, he walked through what's described in Psalm 69. When they quote it, they're wanting you to look at that week of his passion, of his betrayal, of his crucifixion. And Paul quotes it here as the prime example of how Christ did not please himself. But he limited his freedom so he could show his love for his people. He gave all. He offers himself up to death, even death on a cross. As Philippians chapter 2 says. Now, the interesting thing is the part of Psalm 69 that Paul chose to quote here. He quotes this part that says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Reproach is a word that we don't always use in English anymore. We probably should. It's a good one. But some synonyms here we could say is uh, chastise, criticize, scold, taunt, mock. But many people are in disagreement about what exactly Paul was up to when he quoted this part of the psalm. 
But uh, the suggestion that I read this week that made the most sense to me is what he's thinking of is when Jesus was on the cross and the crowds that surrounded him and the Roman soldiers, all of them began to taunt Jesus from where they stood. And they began to say things like, if you're really the Messiah, come down off that cross. If you're really the son of God, uh, just uh, pour out your judgment on the people that are, that are killing you now. If you're who you say you are, free yourself, rescue yourself. Now, of course, Jesus could have done all of that. Jesus, the eternal son of God, was able to take himself off that cross. He would have been justified in doing that very thing. He would have been justified in pouring out his judgment on everyone that was there. And he was free to do so. But he didn't do it. Why not? You tell me. So that we would be justified, that his people would be justified. I think the best answer for saying why didn't Jesus use his freedom in that moment, even though he could, is because he had prioritized love over his liberty. The love that he had for his father in heaven to glorify him and the love that he had for his people that he was purchasing with his very blood. He didn't choose himself in that moment. He chose love. If you are a Christian, every single thing that you have, your hope, your joy, your peace, the forgiveness of sins that you celebrate, the hope of eternal life with God, all of it is purchased for you because Jesus did not prize his liberty over love. And what that means is that when we choose to live with each other in a way that prizes love over liberty, we are reflecting what Jesus did to give us that freedom in the first place. I said this up at Ridge this morning. I want to repeat it here because I feel like it's a good way to sort of see what's going on. If you're redeemed by Jesus, that means that love over liberty is in your DNA now. Because your origin story as a redeemed child of God goes back to that cross where he didn't choose his freedom. That's where your redemption comes from. So now, as a person living in Christ, abiding in him, that means that this idea of living in a way where you yield to the weaker brother, that you love them over exercising your own freedom, it's in your DNA. It's who you are. And if you find it hard to do that, and spoiler alert, it's incredibly hard to do that, to yield your own freedom for the sake of loving a brother or sister, the place that you have to go is not pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps or or trying harder. The place you have to go is back to your origin story when Jesus purchased you with his very own blood and he did it because he didn't choose his freedom in that moment. He chose love. This is why I'm so confident in saying that Paul's discussion about this is not just a management technique. It's not just him saying, do what you got to do to get along. No, 
He sees it as something that goes all the way back to what Jesus did to purchase redemption for his people. Nothing less. Such a cynical view to think that he's just trying to get people to dust things under the rug. No. What he's trying to get people to do is wrestle with the true ramifications of the gospel. And say, if this is your Jesus, then this is how he's calling you to live. Okay, so that's the first thing we're going to talk about. The second thing had to do with worship. Didn't really explain that much when I previewed it. So hopefully I'll be able to kind of unpack this a little bit more now. It's in these back uh, half of this paragraph, the last verses that we looked at. Um, So if you wanted to find one word that kind of glues all of this together thematically, I think we'd say unity. Unity is what I see in these last verses, verses 5, 6, and 7. For instance, verse 5, I see a phrase like, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. To live, you hear the musical sort of uh, language that's been used in harmony? Had some beautiful harmonies up here today, guys. Thanks, music team. So there's this vision of the body living in such harmony, that is unity and togetherness, that they, when they sing, when they talk, when they pray, when they discuss with one another, it's as if they have one voice because they're so unified. Now check this out. That doesn't mean that they agree on every single matter. You realize that? That would make no sense if that's what it meant because this whole section has been talking about when Christians disagree about matters of conscience. No, the church here are people that have been fighting and bickering over, can you eat this food? Is it permissible or not? Do we have freedom here or don't have freedom there? They're disagreeing and yet the church that lives harmoniously and is in worships God as with one voice has decided that those matters, even though they disagree on them, are not the main thing. Their priority, the main thing, is loving Jesus Christ with all they have and relishing in the grace of the gospel. Excuse me, I should have said reveling in the grace of the gospel. They relish it too. That's the vision we have here. Now, when we talk about love over liberty, when we talk about choosing to, to, to curb our liberty for loving a brother or sister, the reason that's so important in light of this unity talk is because that is the environment where we see unity in the first place. When you have people yielding to one another, when you have people saying, you know what, I'm not going to express my freedom here because I want to protect your conscience. I want to show you that love. When those things are happening in the church, guess what's produced? Unity. Harmony. This togetherness that's talked about in the passage. We even, verse 7, I didn't read this one. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. When we're living in this love over liberty kind of way, we create this environment. And why that is so important is because when God's church is worshiping him in unity, it's actually giving him the worship that he delights in and glorifying him in the way that he deserves to be glorified. 
Look at the back end of these verses. Whenever we talk about living in harmony or worshiping God as with one voice, it's always because, verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we are harmonious like that, living in unity together, it brings glory to God. And then verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here's my point. It's not hard. The kind of worship that God delights in is the worship his bring, people bring when they are unified and not bickering and schismatic and, 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 and slanderous towards one another. That kind of worship might be more like a clanging gong and a noisy cymbal to the Lord. But when his people come together in unity, when they're living in this way of love over liberty, yielding to one another, when they sing praises to their God and King, it brings him great glory. Before church each week, there's a small group of folks that will gather in this room right here and pray for the church service. And we pray for a lot of things each week. It changes from week to week. But one thing that's constant is we always pray, Lord, be glorified in what happens here this evening. May Jesus be high and lifted up. Be, may the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be exalted. And what I'm seeing from this passage is that part of the way that that happens, that God is lifted up and exalted in a church service, is when his people sing and worship in unity and harmony, and togetherness. You ask people, what makes worship delightful to God? You're going to get all sorts of answers, and probably good ones. People will say, well, sincerity is what's most important, that you truly believe what you're saying and singing. Amen. People will say, passion is what's most important, that there's enthusiasm and excitement and that we're singing not just in this, this droll, bored way, but with true energy in a way fitting to what God has done. Amen. Other people will say that the most important thing is that every lyric that we sing is theologically accurate so that there's this discipleship that's happening in our music. Amen. Others that will say, hey, our music needs to be more God-centered than it is man-centered, more about what he's done than how I feel. Amen. I love it. All of these things are legit. All of these things, I think, are part of that equation of what makes worship honoring to God. But hardly ever have I been in a conversation where someone has said, you know what the kind of worship God loves is worship that's done with a unified body that loves each other well. And yet here it is, plain as day, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we choose love over liberty, when we do that in our day-to-day interactions with each other, we are creating an environment where God is worshipped in the way he delights in. Not the way we want to worship him, not the way that we like, but the way that he actually likes. Isn't that what's important? What is the worship that honors God? Well, here in Romans 15, we have a piece of that, that puzzle. I was thinking this week, it's like, okay, if this is a key piece of worship that truly brings glory to God, what is the, what's the worship environment that I've been in where, that did this the best? And I was thinking through all these 
experiences that I've had in my Christian life that were powerful, worshipful, that I've remembered over the years. For instance, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, as many of you guys know. We definitely had some passion and enthusiasm in those worship services. So I'm remembering that, being like, huh, that was good. And then I remember when I became more uh, leaning towards Presbyterianism, to be a Presbyterian pastor, I was in some environments where they were so analytical about the songs that we sang and wanting to reflect the truth of the Bible. And I loved that. I loved the care that was taken in song selection and what we did. That was good. I remember being at a Christmas conference in a campus ministry. I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and these guys from my dorm had come that weren't believers, and yet they had heard the gospel, and they're just weeping in repentance and coming to faith in Christ, and we're singing at the top of our lungs like we're at like a 1700s revival. It was awesome. That's a good memory. I even remember being a, a college student going to hear this, this unknown worship leader that some friend had told me about. His name was David Crowder. And being like, wow, this is really excellent. This guy's an amazing musician. All of those experiences, as good and sweet as they were, they pale in comparison to one particular moment I remember that I feel like encapsulates this more than anything I've ever experienced. Some of y'all were there. The date was Sunday, November 11th, 2018. Does that ring a bell for any of y'all? It's the first Sunday after the fire that destroyed paradise. We gathered together in our old worship building downtown, that tiny little building. We crammed people in there. There was hardly space to breathe. In fact, if the fire marshal had come that night, he we probably would have gotten in big trouble. And people came that hadn't seen each other since the fire. Some people who knew that they had lost their home. Others that didn't lose their home. A lot of people that didn't even know yet. It was just three days after. There was a lot of confusion still. And yet, when people saw each other that evening from both Vespers and our site in Paradise, Rich Paradise, there were hugs, there were tears, there were stories, there was this togetherness like I've never seen. And, and, and just so you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's just, you'll see how the sausage is made a little bit. I knew as a pastor that some of these people that were hugging and crying together didn't like each other. They had deep wounds and resentments, some of them. They had deep disagreements. They were talking to me about things then I knew that they were on way different sides of certain debates and yet here they were that night together and saying whatever else might have divided us in the past tonight we're here to stand on our solid shared foundation that of Jesus Christ and his unlimited grace and the fact that we trust God that even in the midst of these tears he's at work in some powerful way so that night we hugged each other, we cried, and we sang our lungs out. That's all we did. We read scripture and we sang. And I will always remember that night. And so reading over this text and seeing how that unity, that togetherness, that love within the body brings glory to God 
makes me think that that night might be one of the nights I've participated in that God delighted in worship the most. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that the words of this scripture would be what linger. My thoughts and my reflections, my stories, they pale in comparison (laughs) to the importance of having this word stored up and treasured in our hearts. And so I pray for everyone that was here, that your word from this portion of the Bible just remain with them, reminding them of the example of Jesus who chose to limit his freedom for the sake of loving his people, reminding them of how the Bible is our encouragement and our endurance and our hope, reminding them that when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, that we truly bring glory to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As I make my way over here to the table, 